Brussels is home to major international organizations like NATO and the EU. But the Belgians still have a few internal issues to work out among themselves. With the beating heart of Europe, Brussels as the de facto capital of the European Union, but we're not ticking very well between us, are we? Coming up, we look at how Belgians view their national identity. We'll also explore what it means to be Bulgarian in the 21st century, even if some of the older generation are nostalgic for the predictability of life under the communists. But at the same time, they didn't have the freedom to speak. They didn't have the freedom to travel abroad. So they lived in a bubble. And hear what it means to be a modern-day Viking in today's Norway. Norwegians, we are a bit shy and we are a bit uh, reserved, but this is just on the outside. What happens when a Norwegian, a Bulgarian, and two Belgians step inside a radio studio? Find out in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You don't have to live in a big country to be proud of where you're from. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and I love learning about the world. I've invited tour guide friends from three of the somewhat smaller nations in Europe to tell us about their national pride in the hour ahead. What do they want us to know about their countries? And how do they see themselves when compared to their neighbors? We'll hear what it means to be Belgian and Bulgarian in just a bit. Let's start with a look at my own heritage by considering what it means to be a modern-day Viking. Tour guide Paul Bjorn Johansson is a descendant of the last great Viking king, Harold the Ruthless, 28 generations back. But he assures us his intentions are friendly when he takes his sailboat out to explore the coasts of Scandinavia. He lives in Oslo, Norway. Good dog, Paul. Hyggelig här. What was that? Uh, nice to be here. Nice to like be I here. Said. I have to learn my Norwegian. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's nice to have you here. Does it get tiresome when you're Norwegian for people to always connect Norwegians with Vikings? Yeah, a little bit. Most people have a, a wrong image of the Vikings. The only thing they know is that they were barbarians and that they went around in all over Europe and raped and pillaged. And so, plundered. And plundered, for sure. <laughs> so I actually like to try to humanize them a bit. Uh, well, that's interesting. So humanize the Vikings. Yeah. They're not always, when they're not raping, pillaging, and plundering, <laughs> what are they doing? Well, then they were home in, back in, in Scandinavia, and they were family men, they were farmers, fishermen, craftsmen, and most importantly, they were um, engineers. How so? What did well, they engineer? Oh, they made some of the of the best seagoing vessels that the world had at that time. And that is a highlight when you visit Scandinavia to see those Viking ships. Oh, it is. The Viking ship museum in Oslo yeah. is quite uh, extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's important to remember, in Norway, it's got the most rugged, godforsaken farm country for people who lived out in the fjords. Mm-hmm. And you've got these farms that are stranded on tiny little meadows yeah. high above the fjords. Only 26 percent of the country is farmable. And you were very good with the sea and fishing and making yes. boats. So it was just kind of logical when you're starving and struggling and just to get in your boats and go south. Yeah, exactly. And then harvest the other cultures. And also we had this system that uh, in a family with several sons, only the, the oldest son would inherit the farm. Okay. So, so, so the other sons, they had to go somewhere else. And they would just hit the boats and go rampaging? Would, like or, like or Leif exploring. Eriksson, who went to Iceland. Because I understand the early Vikings really stretched far away. Even the word Russia mm-hmm. is from a Viking, uh, a yeah. Norwegian root word. It is. It was uh, actually a Swedish. Swedish Viking. Tribe. And, and they went down a, a river in Russia, in the, the Rus or oh, something. Oh, yeah. And they went all the way down to uh, Constantinople, to Istanbul. I, I think that's a very good point, that there was a, a civilization far beyond just the, the cartoonish image of mm-hmm. rape, pillage, and plunder Vikings. And uh, today, Norwegian culture is... Uh, a small culture, what is there, 5 million Norwegians or something? 5 million Norwegians, yes. 
most sparsely populated country in Europe. Yeah, 11 people per square kilometer. Wow. So there's a lot of free space. Paul Johansson's coaching us on what it means to be something of a modern-day Viking right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Paul lives in Oslo, Norway, and specializes in showing American visitors the highlights of Scandinavia. Paul, how can a visitor to Norway get to know your world and get past some of the cliches for a more realistic view of life in today's Norway? I think it's uh, important to be aware that uh, Norwegians, we are a bit shy and we are a bit uh, reserved, Mm -hmm. but this is just on the outside. If you approach a Norwegian and start to talk with him, he will be very open and very friendly. He would uh, like to help you out uh, and talk about his country. So how do you... How do you meet a Norwegian? I mean, and you go to England, you go to a pub, and you go to Turkey, you go to a tea house, you go mm-hmm. to Finland, you go to a sauna. How would you meet a Norwegian? Oh, we have many pubs. <laughs> you go so, to the pub? Yeah, you can do that. No problem. In fact, there's some characteristic pubs uh, in Oslo that I've enjoyed hanging mm-hmm. out. Yeah, there are. And you can try some of the local beer, for example. Now, if you're going to go into a pub or, or to meet a, a local person, uh, what kind of language barrier will we be dealing with? No language barrier at all. Absolutely all- none. Yeah, more or less. Everybody. You find a, if you find an old person not very well educated in a small town, he might not speak English. He might not speak English, but he certainly would know a lot of English words. Because, Even that. Yeah, because we watch shows from the United States, for example. Norway is about the most highly educated and affluent country in, in Europe, mm-hmm. and it's only five million people. You yeah. have a very small world if mm-hmm. you don't speak something other than Norwegian. Exactly. Do you know anybody that speaks Norwegian and another language and does not speak English? No. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You probably know lots of people that speak three or four languages. Yes, I do. But you don't know a single person that can speak Norwegian and another language but not English. No. (laughs) (laughs) That makes the point right there. When you travel in Norway, we should always be mindful of of different uh, festivals. What what Mm -hmm. are some big holidays that you might be aware of when you're traveling in Norway? Well, I would say Christmas and Easter. Those are very, very big um, holidays for us. It's interesting, if you go to Oslo during Easter, for example, you will, you will find the city half empty. Why so? Everybody have gone to the mountains. Okay. Yeah, so e- a lot of people have a mountain cabin? They do. A mountain cabin or a cabin by the sea. But uh, in the winter, we go to the, to the mountain cabins. What's the national holiday? Uh, the national holiday is on the 17th of May. So the July 4th of, yeah. of Norway would be May 17th. May 17th. And in Oslo, big party? Oh, it's, it's the biggest parade, the biggest uh, celebration of a national day you will find in Europe. Seriously? Oh, yes. And what I like about the day, it's how it started. It was a day for the children. The going, mm. It started with children's parades, actually. And that's how it is still today. So, for example, in Oslo, all the schools, like the elementary schools, they go down to Karl Johan and they parade up the main mm. street and up to the, in front of the castle, and there you find the king waving to the people. To the children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And you can actually, uh, from your point of view, Norway celebrates its National Independence Day with more ritual and color and pageantry and parades yes. than any other country in Europe. Because uh, everybody who has a, a national um, costume, they, uh-huh. they wear it that day. Men and women. Men and women. So you have the beautiful sweater and the pewter buckles. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. All right. So that's a great thing if you're mm. in Norway on May 17, midsummer night, uh, June 23rd, around there. Yeah, well... Bigger in Sweden? It's, it's bigger in Sweden. We normally okay. just put up a bonfire and, uh, and we barbecue some sausages and that's it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Norway with Paul Johansson, a guide from Oslo. 
You know, Paul, Norway is the most highly taxed, well, Scandinavian general, and I've got a sense in Norway that, that people don't really complain about their taxes. They, they willingly spend a lot of their income to the government and have high expectations mm-hmm. for the government. Yes. What's the general Norwegian take on this? We grow up with this system, and we learn to trust this system. Mm-hmm. We, we can see that it works. We can see that when our neighbor gets sick, he can go to the hospital, and that, it doesn't cost him anything even though he doesn't have any health you, insurance. You actually care if your neighbor has no problem with health insurance? Yeah, of course. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, so, so it's important for us to pay our taxes, uh-huh. uh, but then it's important to get all these uh, services back from the state. So if you had a, a corrupt uh, government, mm-hmm. it might be less rewarding to pay your taxes. Yeah, I, I don't think people would pay their taxes. So in Scandinavia, you have a government that takes, by your assessment as a taxpayer, mm-hmm. that, that uses the money for the social good. We feel very much that the politicians, they are just like us. You walk in the street and there's a politician. We don't feel any big difference between the politicians and the people. They wow. are there to serve the people. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just so impressed by that. So healthcare covered? Yes, education. Education? Covered. Do people have uh, stress for their retirement? No, they don't. It's pretty much uh, covered as well. This is public radio, and every once in a while we have what's called a pledge drive because, you know, people have to voluntarily pay to make public radio happen. Do you have public broadcasting in Norway? We have public uh, broadcasting, and everybody who owns a TV or a radio, they have to pay, uh, I think it's about $300 a year. Really? To, yes, to the so state. So when you fill out your taxes, if you have a TV, the government knows. <laughs> well, actually, they, they come to your house and inspect. They do? <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> so your public radio station could come to your house and see if you have a radio. Yeah, and if yeah, you do, they have people going around inspecting this. <laughs> but you don't have to listen to pledge drives? No. No don't. begging on the radio, no, no begging no, no. on the TV? The, the state-owned channels, yeah. uh, are they are without commercials. Why is it worth $300 in Norway to have public broadcasting TV and radio? How is it a joy for you? Because the good thing is that they make TV programs that are not just for the masses. So they're, mm-hmm. they're they don't they don't have to think about profit. They don't have to think that okay, uh, we're not going to make this program because not that many people will look at it. So we get a, a big variety of different um, TV shows. Vel fremme producerer emigrantene det som i dag har blitt til over fire og en halv million etterkommere. Mange av disse er stolte av sitt norske opphav, men lever samtidig i den tro at Norge stort sett handler om lutefisk, lefse og lokalkjente isbjørner. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Paul Johansen from Oslo about Norway. If we do go to Norway, what, what are a couple of... Uh, I think it's always good style for a traveler to know a few words. What's four or five words that we should know in Norwegian when we travel? Well, you should know uh, takk, which means thanks. Takk. Takk. And uh, you should know uh, hade. Hade? What is hade. that? Hade? It comes from hade bra, which means uh, have it good. Have it good. But we make it short. So hade we, bra. So we just say hade. Which, hade, okay. Which kind of means have it. Have it. <laughs> That's Because I, I think I remember my relatives giving me a, a pastry or a, a Napoleon kaka or a krum mm-hmm. kaka, one of the many cakes. Mm-hmm. And they would say, hade bra. Hade bra. Hade bra. Mm-hmm. Have it good. Yeah, have it good. Nice. Have it. <laughs> <laughs> have it. And uh, in the morning you say, uh, good morning. Good morning. Mm-hmm. And in the daytime? Good dog. Good dog. And in the evening, good kveld. Good kveld. Good kveld. And how do you say goodbye? You can just say ha det bra as well. Ha det bra. Yeah. Have a good. Farvel. Have a good. Farewell. Yeah. Farewell. Farewell. Yeah, farewell. And I like when I'm walking down the streets, everybody's going, hi, hi. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Yeah. Hi, hi. They, they say that, uh, well, especially the Danes, they say when they hear Norwegian, it's like yeah, as if we are singing. 
when yeah. we're talking. Very I'm, you cheerful. Know, I always say when I'm in Scandinavia, I feel like I'm with my people. But when mm. I cross the border from Sweden or Denmark into Norway, then it really kicks into gear. Yeah, this really is my yeah. heritage because there is a difference. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Norwegians have more sing-song, a little more mm-hmm. cheery, it seems like. Yeah, Many different ways to say tuck. There's mange tuck. Tusen tuck. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a thank you, many thanks, many, thousand thanks. Thousand thanks. So this yeah. is fun just to pick up. But the frustration for a traveler is everybody speaks English. So yeah. if you try to struggle with Norwegian, mm-hmm. uh, the Norwegian friend will just kind of go, ah, let's not mess with this. Let's speak English and, and understand yeah, each right. other. Tusen tuck. <laughs> Paul Johansson. Welcome to Norway. I really believe that Norway is the most beautiful country I've ever seen. I utfordrende og uventede konkurrenser skal det vise hvem av dem som best klarer å tilpasse seg norsk natur, norske skikker, You're now eating Ram's testicles. og nordmenn. Hervanya has cooked. Wait, say that again. We'll look at what it means to be a citizen of one of the oldest countries in Europe, which also happens to be one of the newer members of the European Union. Find out what it means to be Bulgarian in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Up next, friends from Belgium report on life in the Low Countries and explain how their country manages with both Flemish and French-speaking populations. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email... It's radio at ricksteves.com. From the outside, French fries and waffles, good beer and chocolate seem to be pretty good reasons to be proud you're from Belgium. But the country is split into French and Flemish-speaking halves, with cosmopolitan Brussels in the middle. Belgian-born tour guides Ferdi Mengi and Nina Derricks join us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about their home country and what makes them proud to call themselves Belgian. Ferdi and Nina, thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. So glad being here. Now, Belgium kind of falls through the cracks when I think about Belgium from a European point of view. I mean, I have to tell people, it's the little country just south of Amsterdam, you know. (laughs) For you guys, what does it mean to be Belgian? We we talked about this, Nina and I, what does it feel to be Belgian? If you would have asked me that question a hundred years ago, I would probably have an answer for it because we were very insulated in that little Uh families that never left. Right. But now, like you say, you hop on a plane, right. you mingle with French, German, English, and just name whatever you want. I mean, we don't feel like being a Belgian. No. Are, you, really. are you more European, would you say? Or I what? would say, yeah, more global. Today, though, the, the government of the EU is essentially in Brussels. In, in Brussels mm-hmm. So you've got more diplomats and lobbyists in Brussels than any other European city. I think the uh, lobby district of Rotterdam, mm-hmm. or Den Haag, in the, Den Haag, the, the, yeah. the, the, the capital mm-hmm. of uh, the Netherlands, mm-hmm. is empty now. Yeah. They've all moved to Brussels. So yeah. Brussels is this amazing international mm-hmm. city. Mm-hmm. Does that sort of spill into the rest of the Belgians where you're more inclined I'll, to feel part of your... I don't think that anybody feels that, that we are the, the say, the middle point of interest of, of the whole EU. We don't have that. Yeah. The Belgians don't feel that. You I still never have your some, local concerns. Yeah, we, we never hear anybody say to my friends, hey, you know, we are, you know, Brussels has the EU. I know nobody says ever. Say, I've never, you ever heard that? That somebody says, we got, you know, the capital of the EU in Brussels. And we no, are so, not really. You don't no. hear that. So that's it the just big, happens to that's be the there. Big, it happens to be there. It just happens to be there. Europeans are famous for paying high taxes. Uh, Nina, you and Ferdi both pay plenty of taxes to be Belgians. What in your country's, the services it provides, do you find that is something you're particularly proud of about the values of Belgium? Education. 
I think the Flemish system oh. in particular is very highly regarded on the world scale. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I think it's named together with, for instance, the Canadian system of uh-huh. education. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely feel that um, I'm very happy to pay taxes to contribute to society. Mm-hmm. Very high taxes in Belgium, but we get a fantastic return for it. And what would be the fantastic return specifically? Healthcare, for instance. Healthcare. Yes. Um, I remember that um, there's a European law, but you have to know about all these laws, that says that, for instance, in England, if you are on national health and you can't get your hip operation within six months, you are free to have your operation in any other country in the European Union. And then your own national health pays for that. Oh, my goodness. They find you a, they find you a, place. a space very quickly. That was a clever way to incentivize. And Let's everybody not have wanted wait. to go to Belgium because you get a private room, color television and hate <laughs> the cuisine. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Is. It's break true. a hip quickly and go break, to Belgium. But I must say that's true so far. But it's, I feel and I see that happen. It's slowly changing. Oh, absolutely. The prices are it's getting more expensive. Although mm-hmm. we have a great healthcare, mm-hmm. but for example, medication mm-hmm. that's getting more and more expensive. I mean, I remember when I go get some med- medication in the pharmacy, you pay a couple of euros. The other day, I went you know with this little cough I had, mm-hmm. and I came out with a syrup, a few pills, and a few this. 30 euros. I mean, it's amazing. So that'd, be, slowly, that'd be about $35, yeah. Yeah, and slowly it's, it's getting higher. So there is an economic reality yes, where you're having to have a higher copays and more expensive uh, more pharmaceuticals. More, there's and so more and more people in Belgium, more people need medication. It's getting very expensive. But Freddy, I also think we've had it really good in Belgium. We had it. We sure. want it better for the future yeah. and it's not feasible. No, it's not so feasible. So we're complaining out of luxury because we have to yeah. give So that's in just the reality. Bit. We need to moderate. There's an economic reality. We're learning what it means to be Belgian right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Belgian-born tour guide guests Nina Derricks and Ferdi Mengi. Now, this is complicated. Belgium is a small country, but it's got two languages uh, dominated by the Flemish, which is like the Germanic-speaking people in the north, essentially the Dutch language, and then in Wallonia, the southern part, we have the French-speaking zone. Can you make a generalization about how Walloon French-speaking people are different than the Flemish-speaking uh, people of the north I know it's dangerous to make generalizations, mm-hmm. but are there are there general characteristics that contribute to the stress that we see in Belgium right now as that country tries to hold it together? There's still a big difference. Because the French and the Germans, I mean, you can just think, you know, hardworking, efficient, yeah. punctual, well, or let's live for today and let's have some fine wine. I mean, that's kind that's, of a cliche, but it's I think it's true. That's between the Walloons and the, and the Flemish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Flemish are more industrious there. They're workers. The mm-hmm. infrastructure, if you, if you drive to Flanders... You will see that the road infrastructure is way better than the south. Mm-hmm. The south is just lift kind of on its own and mm-hmm. it will repair itself. Different priorities. Mentality, different priorities. I different mean, mentality. And one day, I mean, a long time ago, when the Walloons were more important, when the blue-blooded people, the French-speaking, because French was a fancy language to speak, and Flemish was a language of the peasants. Mm. That's how, how they see that it. Would, I guess that would make sense. In, yeah. a, in a early European history, yeah, we'll uh, you know, the, the French would be the aristocrats and sure. the sophisticates mm-hmm. and the elites. And the uh, elite always spoke French. They always the spoke. elite spoke French. Even today, the old families, if you meet, I mean, sometime in Hasselt, for example, where I was born. Which is very Flemish. It's very Flemish. And the old people, they mm-hmm. still speak a few words of French. They say a phrase in Flemish oh. and they toss in a few French words. To let words. them know that to they're know cosmopolitan. I'm, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. they do that still. The old yeah. people, not the young, but the old. Now, now little, Brussels is the, ca- the dominant city, the capital, and I understand it's primarily French-speaking. 
would you say that nowadays? Brussels? Brussels no. is changing. It's changing. Still French. A lot of French, but uh-huh. Flemish. The Flemish are kind of... Okay, so but it's that same dynamic. It was the yeah. dominant city, oh, and it, and totally, it was French. Totally French. So the, the Flemish people have had quite a run. Oh, yeah. I, if I was Wallonian, I would be a little bit threatened. Like, where's the limit? Oh, they are. Well, Brussels is a sticky point because Brussels, it's our capital, but it's on Flemish territory. But they speak French, mostly. Ah. That's the whole sticky point. And even if the Flemish would like to separate... Yeah, yeah which Brussels. we get, yeah, which we oh, get more. That would be a problem because if if they Brussels can't let Brussels French, go because so Brussels, it's economically too profitable. Yeah. So they if you're a separatist who's a Flemish person who thinks we work harder, we're better organized, we're tired of subsidizing the people of the French-speaking region in the south, let's just split the country. The problem is Brussels. Uh, Brussels. Brussels. So they that's can't the fourth. That's the fourth. We be talking about Flemish, the Walloons, the Germans, yeah. and there's Brussels. That's the fourth one. So what is the Germans? What is that? That's the, the, the part where they speak, uh, that uh, open, is uh, Malmedy. So they speak, a little German, bit of... A uh, little bit on the southeast. Uh, so yeah. there's a German speaking, and, yeah. they're, and they're recognized as a yeah, legitimate yeah, language, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. not... Yeah. Yeah. They speak mm-hmm. German. So there's the fourth problem, is Brussels. You, you talk about it like this is actually a, a possibility. There is discussion. There are people that want to split up Belgium. Is, is this of a possibility? Course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that flares up very regularly, oh, yeah. doesn't it? So you've lived with this for a long time. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, but, but when but it comes down to it, but now the Flemish people have more um, viability because you're, you're we have the industry. We're we we strong. Now. We could be independent. I don't think that Wallonia could be independent by itself. So Wallonia is probably less likely to want to break away because they would be of impoverished. Course. So I, we only have two Fle- Flemish pe- people yeah. here, so we can't have a Walloon no, person uh, defending themselves. I mean, but, but the Walloon but, person might yeah. say, uh, yeah. "Yeah, we're 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 becoming the orphan little sister yes, or something of of Belgium." But that would be crazy, yeah. In a global world, we're going to yeah. we're the beating heart of Europe, yeah, yeah. With Brussels as the de facto capital of the European Union, but we're not ticking very well between us, are we? No. You can secede from Belgium, or you can secede from France, but you cannot secede from Europe. And well, I guess England can, but if you're in the continent, you know, you're, you're just part of that family. So it seems kind of a yeah. r- ridiculous point mm-hmm. that you would split up because it really is more and more. Absolutely. The, the yeah, but the problem Union. is that in other countries like Italy, the North want to separate, the Basque want to separate, the Catalans want to separate. There's so many things that want to separate from their own countries mm-hmm. that Belgium is hopping on that as well. Some people, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's the idea. When there is like an influence from other regions in the world, it kind of gets them going as well. Oh, it's like Scotland wanting to separate, yeah, especially separate. now with you know, Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Scotland all, wanted to stay in the European Union, so that's going to come up again. You hear that everywhere, and every country wants to have some part they want to separate. Huh, I wonder what's driving that. Part yeah. of it is the stress of immigration and, and economic realities in a global yeah. society. Yeah. In a global world, everybody yeah. has to work harder to compete, it seems like. And the and funny part is it's usually those regions who want to separate from their own country are the rich regions. Look at the Liga North in Italy. That's where all the industry is. That's where, the, where people have money. Who knows? This is Travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> We're talking about Belgium with Freddie Mengi and Nina Derricks. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Amanda in Chicago sent us an email. And Amanda writes, Have you seen a shift in the ways that Belgians interact with refugees and or Muslims since the terrorist attack? Is there an organized effort to build bridges in order to reduce tensions? So this is a very interesting and difficult point is Belgium has a lot of Muslims who are immigrant laborers, I guess, basically, who are willing to do the hard hard work mm-hmm. for a wealthy society that needs somebody to, you know, work in the fields or work in the factories or hang the drywall in the, in the mm-hmm. new construction sites. And there's been um, terrorist uh, tragedies in Belgium more than in most countries. Yeah. Is there um, a reaction from decent yes. people against their immigrants 
and there what's is, driving it? And is there an effort to mellow that out, or what's going on? There is one, and I, I, I this is State Secretary Vranken, and he's a young guy, and he's got a lot of wind against him because he's taking drastic measurements. But if you don't fit here, you're going back. You know, if you don't have the right paperwork, you don't want to find a job here. Mm-hmm. And he's sending back already thousands of people. So this is just making it ship shape. Yeah, There's ship shape. Papers, it has to. Somebody's in. taking action. I mean, all the other politicians, yeah, but you can't. They're poor people. Okay, I understand that. Mm-hmm. But you're not contributing to a good economy. Mm-hmm. You're actually destroying the good economy. And that's what we mm-hmm. don't want. You know, we're willing to help. I, I've long had this feeling that immigration is, is a reality and it makes mm-hmm. things vibrant and diversity is good. But there's a difference between poor people coming in into a rich country and just squatting and not embracing the local culture and poor, hardworking immigrants assimilating. And they don't need to give up their religion and they don't need no. to, to give up their, their personal family values. But you need to embrace what that country is. Of course. Is that reasonable or is that racist? No, that's reasonable. That's not racist. That's reasonable. And we gave them things. I mean, you should know as well. Let them build their their mosques and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. we're not against them. But if you come to a foreign country, you have to accept our rules. So if they think we're a rich country and we just give money away like we're giving away candy. That's not how it works. Because there's a reality. I was just in Antwerp and there's a lot of new mosques in Antwerp. Oh, everywhere. Yeah. 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 Nina, what's your take on that from, from your corner of Belgium? Um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I think that everybody is welcome. I think we need to make those people citizens and teach them that, um, educate them really, that there's a lot that you can have, but also you have duties towards this country. That's mm-hmm. citizenship mm-hmm. to me. That's citizenship, Yes, exactly. and I think really we should go for the women, educate the women, and why not say, yes, of course, you're welcome you can become Belgian. You can be on the benefit system, absolutely, just like any other Belgian. But you come to lessons and learn about our culture. If you don't come, no benefits. That's a way of integrating. I don't think that's too drastic. It also gives a chance to those women to get out of their insulation. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones who bring up kids. The women, and that's recognized now in um, international relief and development work and so on. It's the women who shape the the families and the women are worth investing in and and they're the ones that will actually be responsible as as citizens. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Derricks and Ferdi Mengi. We're talking about what it means to be a Belgian. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Ed is on the line from Valencia in California. Hi, Ed. Hey, Rick, and hello to your honored guests. I just wanted to tell your listeners how delightful and how charming and how beautiful and friendly a country Belgium is, uh, having traveled the country from uh, from end to end. I mean, you can basically go from one end to the other in three hours by high-speed train. <laughs> and uh, just to me, uh, it, it's one of those amazing places that uh, you meet the people and they're very friendly. I've been spoken to in, in perfect English on the streets of Antwerp and Ostend and asked if I needed directions. I've been invited to homes, and uh, I've been given uh, some very good uh, tips on which local beers or breweries to try uh, in a certain <laughs> part of the country, and I, I'm just very intrigued and very charmed by this country and, uh, and its people. It has beautiful people, it's diverse, it's got a unique culture, and it's got, by many connoisseurs' estimate, the best beer in the world. That's true. <laughs> I've met so many beer pilgrims in Belgium. <laughs> Ed, it sounds like you appreciate a good Belgian beer. I do, I do, I, but I'd be interested to hear if your guests 
could recommend a certain area or a certain brewery in Belgium uh, for my next visit because uh, it's been a few years since I've been, and I, I do look forward to traveling there again. Mm. Nina, Ferdi, any tips for the beer pilgrim? I mean, we got now, I think the latest count was about 1,850 different beers. This show is going to take a long time if I have to pick <laughs> one, but... There's one beer. I want to kill two birds at once. I mean, you know Bruges. You've been to Bruges. And right. there's one brewery called Moss, and they have a beer called Bruxe Zot. Mm. B-R-U-G-E-S-Z-O-T. What does uh, that mean? It means the crazy Bruges, the crazy person from Bruges. The crazy That's guy from Bruges. And there's a light and a dark beer. And I like right. the dark beer because it's, it's been yeasted on a barrel. And you can drink it in the brewery. You get a tour from the brewery. You can tour the brewery, can't you? you? Can I remember that brewery. Bruxelles Salt Moss. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. They, would, oh, they do a wonderful brewery yes, tour, yes. and then you get a taste of the taste. right there, the oh, freshest. And beautiful, and it's a great beer. I'm not a big beer drinker, although I'm Belgian. But, so I, the but, crazy Belgian. And the, if you go to the brewery, yeah. you can drink it unfiltered. It unfiltered. really is different. Oh, it's, it's yes. oh, so And much this better. brewery now has just made a pipeline underground in Bruges yeah. where they pump that beer through so that it can be bottled in the plant just outside Bruges. Yeah. Wow. Let's yeah. hope it bursts at one stage. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun on the street. So that sounds like a wonderful travel tip. And, you know, you can go all over Belgium looking for places for beer, but I find that Whatever city you go to has wonderful pubs with local clientele, and they've got all the beers right there. And brewers in the city. Brussels, for example, has a lot of brewers in the city. There's tons of places like that. And though. they will not serve the fine beer without the proper glass. I always find Every that. beer has its own glass. So if they, don't, sure. if they don't have the glass, and if you ask for your favorite beer in a beautiful pub, and by chance they don't have any of that beer's glass, mm. they'll actually come back and they'll say, excuse me, we have the beer, but we don't have the proper glass. Would you still like the beer in, a, in a different glass, mm-hmm. or can we get you a beer with the right Absolutely. glass? Absolutely. That's true. Interesting. I've had the Moss Tills before. I haven't had the beer that uh, he mm. was speaking of, but uh, I'm very intrigued to try that. That sounds wonderful. Ed, right. thanks for your call, and, and uh, happy travels. You're quite welcome, and thank you very much, and I uh, look forward to hearing more. Oh, take care. Okay, thanks. Bye. All right. Uh, when we talk about drinking a serious beer, yeah. then you really sit and you look at that beer for a while. Uh, one of our brewers said, you build up a relationship with that beer <laughs> and you taste it. And because really we like to do, as we say, we're going to do a terrace, meaning you sit on the terrace and you look at the people. Terraskedunia. Uh, and terraskedunia. Yeah, we're yeah, for that. We're gonna that is a cultural we're, heritage. We're, we're going to do, we a, terrace. do yeah, a terrace. We're yeah, we're going to do a terrace. So that's, you're going to sit on a terrace in a beautiful, with the community out around you in the sky. One ray above. of sunshine. We're so grateful. All the terraces appear and people will sit down and then... You just sit there with your beer, and it's like a very expensive burgundy glass of wine that you're going to drink. You don't just drink it down like that. No, you, you can. You develop a relationship. Absolutely. You don't just hop into yes. bed with it. You can know it. <laughs> and right. really, if you have one glass of devil beer, and okay, you don't feel it, you have another one, you will feel that second one when you've had it. It hits you at the back of your knee. Yeah, that's the other beer, duvel. Yes, the duvel. 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 But, but you feel better about it. You, you respect each other in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, they say you you don't really, they, they always say you know what your last glass of beer is because that's the one that talks back to you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, really. I remember well, yeah. when I was younger, yeah, they yeah. talked back to me a lot. Yeah. And one of our brewers in the brewery said, hey, in heaven there's no beer, so let's drink it here. Yeah. It's nice. It's, it's yeah. a well, saying. It's a saying that well, we have. And I feel like I could be in a beautiful pub in Bruges right now talking to two new friends, <laughs> getting to know our beer. 
and connecting with the culture. Mm. Nina Derricks, Ferdinando Mengi, thanks so much for being with us and sharing about your beautiful little country, Belgium. My pleasure. 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 I'm a Belgian, so thank you very much. Bulgaria was once American shorthand for a backwards and exotic country. But once you hear tour guide Stefan Bozijev's pride for his home country, I'll bet you'll want to see it for yourself and see what makes Bulgaria such a fascinating place to explore. Hear what it means to be Bulgarian. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When I first visited Bulgaria back in the 1970s, you had to be careful. The communist authorities were suspicious of corrupting influence from Western travelers, and locals were careful to avoid being heard discussing politics and religion. Well, a lot has certainly changed. The Iron Curtain is long gone, and you're free to say whatever you like. Bulgaria is a member of the European Union. It's slowly gaining in prosperity, but still one of Europe's bargain destinations. It has an amazing history with traditions that date back to the ancient Romans, Thracian, and Ottoman societies. It's an orthodox religious stronghold, but there's a sizable Muslim population as well, and your tour guide will proudly point out the pre-Christian influences in the country's folk traditions. Stefan Bozajev is a principal tour guide for Luba Tours in Sofia and one of Bulgaria's most passionate advocates. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what it really means to be a proud Bulgarian. Stefan, welcome back. Zdrasti, Rick. Zdrastrik, what is that? Zdrasti. Hi. Now, you're a tour guide, and you take groups around Bulgaria. As you take American groups around Bulgaria, what do you find is the biggest surprise with your travelers when they finally get to Bulgaria? Well, one of the biggest surprises, I really love to see their faces for the first cultural shock. When we are saying yes or no, it's completely different than the rest of the world. So when we are saying uh, no, we are actually nodding our head. So you're nodding your head yes, like we would say, and then that means no. No. <laughs> and we're shaking our heads side to side. This means one big yes. If you have a eight or ten days in Bulgaria, what would you see? For sure we will see the capital of Bulgaria, Sofia. Mm-hmm. We will see the biggest monastery, the spiritual heart of Bulgaria, Rila Monastery. The Rila Monastery up in the mountains. Up in the mountains. This is like the, the treasure chest of the culture, really. It goes way, way back, the, the soul of the, of the people. Yes, exactly. The soul and the heart of the Bulgarian people is there. And this monastery is still alive, and there's still monks there. Yes, there are still monks, still active, and the center of pilgrimage for Bulgarians and people from abroad. And then you would go where? And then we can go to Plovdiv in the so-called Thracian lowlands in Plovdiv that it is really thriving the city culture of Bulgaria. So that's where you feel the urban energy and the new creativity. And you said the Thracian lowlands. Thrace, that's a word that goes back to ancient times. Yes. The Thracians, these were the northern neighbors of the Greeks. So we know the ancient Greeks. What's the famous Thracian? The most famous Thracian, this is Spartacus the one who rebelled against the Romans. Spartacus? Yes. He came from present-day Bulgaria. Exactly, from the mountains of present-day Bulgaria. As we travel past the Thracian Peninsula, where do we go? Definitely, I'll go to the seaside. The seaside? Yes. This is the Black Sea coast. This is the Black Sea coast. One small town, Nesebar, because Nesebar, this is a UNESCO site. Medieval churches, small cobbled streets, 19th century timber mansions. 
and at the same time, you can enjoy some exquisite time on the beach, on the sandy beach, not a rocky one. And that's just scratching the surface. There's so much to see in Bulgaria. Now, Bulgaria has changed so rapidly. When you look at Bulgaria today, what do you think the greatest triumphs are, and what are the greatest frustrations as your country tries to um, get its act really together and, and succeed and grow and prosper? For sure, the biggest national triumph, it was 2007 when Bulgaria became a member of the European Union. This was our greatest achievement. And at the same time, when we look back almost 30 years after the fall of the communist period, still there are some disappointments. We want everything to happen so quickly, which is actually not exactly possible. So you have to be patient. I, I know during communist time there was really bad corruption. And then after the communists were thrown out and you had your freedom, you still have corruption. What are the challenges today with corruption in your government? Yes, we still have corruption in Bulgaria, unfortunately. And we even have a joke which is related to corruption. In different countries, there's an organized crime. And in Bulgaria, organized crime has a country which is closely related to the corruption. We're still fighting, but the good thing is that there are a lot of young spirited people who organize themselves and at every single wrongdoing, we are on the streets and is protest. Protesting? Yes, protesting. Against corruption? Against corruption, so raising our voice. After you got rid of communism, the corruption survived? Corruption survived. Same people? Same people. Same people, just different name of the parties. Oh, no. That's disappointing. It could be disappointing, but also at the same time, it gives us a chance to show us that we can fight. And in the end of the day, I'm sure we can prevail. Are there some older people that are nostalgic about communist days? And what would they be nostalgic about? Yes, there are some senior citizens that are still very nostalgic about the communist period because they would say, we had security, we had our homes, we had our vacation to go to the Black Sea or the mountains. But at the same time, they didn't have the freedom to speak. They didn't have the freedom to travel abroad. So they lived in a bubble. And now with freedom, it also comes with the freedom to have to produce and have to work hard or you suffer. There's more of a, a risk of being poor, I suppose. Yes, there is such risk. But in the end of the day, it is your choice and it is in your hands. This is, in my view, one of the biggest advantages of the democracy that we have. It is in your hands to decide what you can do. Our guest, Stefan Bozajev, comes to us from Sofia, and he's giving us an insider's perspective on today's Bulgaria on Travel with Rick Steves. Information about the tours he leads is online at luba.tours. That's spelled L-Y-U-B-A. Stefan, all over Europe, like in the United States, there is a fearfulness with immigrants and refugees, and nationalism is on the rise, and, and right-wing parties are taking advantage of this sentiment in the population to take power. In Bulgaria, is this dynamic showing itself? Do you have uh, a rising right-wing party? Actually, we have more than one uh, far right-wing parties. Even the name of uh, one of them speaks for itself. Attack or attack. Actually, these people, they're playing on the fears of the ordinary citizens of the country. So is this a concern for people that want to be more of the part of uh, the European Union? It is a main concern because 
most of these uh, right-wing parties are directly influenced by President Putin. Putin is supporting right-wing parties in Bulgaria. Yes, that's right. How does this man reach out so far? What's his trick? His trick is that there are still, as I mentioned, a lot of people nostalgic about the old regime, communist regime, the brotherhood. So he makes uh, the good old days romantic in their mind, even if they weren't so good. Yes, exactly. And also playing on the strength of the Slavic and Orthodox kinship that we have with the Russians. You're both Slavic and you're both Orthodox. Exactly. So you have that kinship. We have this kinship. come into the arms of loving Mother Russia. Exactly. And this is in the the hands of such political leaders, and they use this love. Actually, it's a really natural love in some of the people of Bulgaria. But they are just using this love. And they are saying the Western values are not our values. Our values are the Russian ones. So what are the Russian values compared to the Western values? First, I would like to underline, I deeply admire the Russian culture. I deeply admire the Russian people. And we are talking now more or less the values of the President Putin and the clique around him. These are the values of suppressing the other. These are the values of suppressing the liberal, open-minded, thinking people. What, what does that mean, progressive, open-minded? Actually, this means the people who are looking in the future, who don't believe in discrimination, people who believe, really, it could sound a little bit idealistic, but in the brotherhood and equality. So there's this ideal of brotherhood and equality, and then there is the reality of let's make Bulgaria great again. Yes. And then some are more equal than others. Hmm. And what is the major fear of the people who support the right-wing party that Putin supports in Bulgaria? The major fear is that there are refugees on our doors. The refugees will come in and, and cut in line in front of them. Yes, and they will take our jobs and they will be paid instead of uh, our schools and infrastructure being supported. But there's no grounds about it. Where do these refugees come from? Mainly these are refugees from Syria, from Iraq and Afghanistan. Is it an actual problem? How many people are we talking about in <laughs> Bulgaria? <laughs> we are talking about less than 10,000 people officially registered. So this is quite an effective scare campaign, really. It is. A lot of media, which are actually fake media, not real media, help for creating this uh, status of uh, fear-mongering. Stefan Bozajev from Luba Tours in Sofia, Bulgaria, is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the sights you can enjoy and the changes to Bulgarian society you can observe as Stefan tells us about the pride he has for his home country. You can also listen on demand to the founder of Luba Tours describe the intricate traditions of Orthodox Easter and Christmas in Bulgaria. Look in the Travel with Rick Steves archives for programs number 468 and 283. They're from 2016 and 2012, and you'll find them at ricksteves.com slash radio. Stefan, Bulgarians are really into politics, and they're really into sports. Yes. What, are, what are the passions with sports for the Bulgarians? For sure, sport number one is what we would say football or soccer. Actually, the biggest achievement of Bulgarian, uh, the Bulgarian soccer team was in the United States during the World Cup in 1994 when we took the fourth place, and we were so much cheered. Fourth place, fourth place in the, in World, the Cup. World Cup. Little beating, Bulgaria. Little Bulgaria beating Argentina and Germany. You beat Germany and Argentina. Yes. What's the population of your country? 
It's around 7.5 million. 7 million people, and you took on the, the powerhouses of the soccer world. How did you beat them? Was it just luck? <laughs> I, don't be- I don't believe it was just luck, but at that time, the team spirit was really presented. And I could definitely relate this team spirit to the first years after the fall of the communist regime when we did believe that things could be changed through mutual team efforts. By working together. By working together. Solidarity. Exactly. That's the core value. Stefan, when you think of uh, pride, you've got pride of becoming the fourth best soccer team in the world. Uh, what other things are the, the Bulgarians proud about that we might feel when we visit your country? One of the things that every single Bulgarian will talk about it, this is for the dark period of World War II, when Bulgaria being an ally of uh, Germany for a second consecutive time, we stood up for one single fact to protect our Bulgarian Jewish people. 49,000 of them, 49,000 saved. So in the 1930s, there were 49,000 Jews in Bulgaria, and by the end of the war, they were all okay. They were all saved. They were all saved. And what I would like to underline, it was not an effort of one person or a part of the society. It was the one society acting as one. Solidarity. Solidarity. But I got to say, you chose the wrong side two times in World War I and in World War II. You, you joined correct. up with the Germans. That's correct. Did you learn your lesson? It seems no. <laughs> That's, it seems no. <laughs> Let's talk about Putin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. History is so interesting. When you think of Bulgaria, it's actually one of the more poor countries in Europe. You're a member of the EU. You've been that way for 10 years. In Europe, there are net givers and net receivers. Everybody pays taxes into the European Union, and the rich countries pay in um, more than they take out, and the poor countries pay in take out more than they put in. How is this working for Bulgaria? Oh, it's working great for Bulgaria. And we have one common joke in Bulgaria. It's great to have the German taxpayers working for us in order to have infrastructure. These are the direct funds coming from Brussels to Bulgaria. Actually, it was estimated that in these 10 years, Bulgaria received around 20 billion euros from 20 billion. And how does that affect, uh, how do you notice that as a citizen in Bulgaria, your infrastructure improving after 10 years of membership in the EU? How does it impact your life? Actually, the infrastructure is getting quite well. Uh, We had our first at the moment, last highway finished uh, with EU money, so it is much, much better for us. But one of the greatest achievements is the money that are given to education, to student exchange. These are the young people of Europe being able to travel all around, to see that their peers. So that is the Erasmus program? Exactly. Tell us why the EU would give money so people can study and work in different countries. At the moment, many people would blame the Brussels officials for being extreme bureaucrats. There could be something right about it. But they are quite clever in one thing. They do believe in the European idea and the future of the European idea are the young people. And the young people should travel to see their peers around, to see that they have much more in common. Because by traveling, they are learning. They are learning that the other people are not so different from them. Not so scary. Not so scary. We can live together. We can together. And maybe that's an ethic of the European Union. Now, Britain decided, nah, we don't want this anymore, so Britain is going to leave the Brexit, and that's, what, 20% of the European Union. They didn't like all of these nations from the former east of Europe sitting at the table. 
If somebody in Bulgaria is in favor of the European Union or against the European Union, what would their compliment be and their complaint be? Well, the people that are in favor of the European Union, they would say the following. You see, we have endless perspectives in the EU. Free movement of people, free movement of capitals, the free choice where to settle in the European Union. But those who are afraid of the European Union, they would say, those bureaucrats in Brussels, they're imposing us completely ridiculous norms. Yes, to some extent, it is too much regulations, but we cannot be perfect. We are thriving, and actually the people in Brussels and all around Europe, uh, almost 400 million citizens, are trying to live together because we've been through together the madness of World War II. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Stefan Bozajev about Bulgaria and what you might find when you travel there. Stefan, I understand Bulgaria has the only museum of humor in the world. Yes. Do Bulgarians have a sense of humor? Yes, Bulgarians have a sense of humor, and especially in one region in Bulgaria. This is in central Bulgaria, around the town of Gabrovo. Gabrovo. Tell me a a Bulgarian joke that would uh, merit having a museum of humor. Uh, one very traditional joke is uh, the following. Uh, uh, the guests that are invited to weddings, they're encouraged to be only on their socks. Why? Not to pay for an orchestra, but to listen to the orchestras in the nearby towns. Now, wait a minute. So this one, so yeah. in other words, you hear no footsteps. Everything is so soft. So soft, So you yes. can dance to the music coming from the next building. Exactly. Even from the next village. Stefan, when I think about Bulgarian humor, a a lot of it is uh, sort of because you're very careful with money. And we can say even stingy. Stingy. Some would say that we are the Scottish on the Balkans. The Scottish on the Balkans. Exactly. I heard about a guy who who spilled his Rocky. No. He broke his bottle and his vodka was spilled under the ground and he waited till the winter when it froze. And then he could take it up. Yes, you know, they use it as the ice cubes. And another joke, why when the people from Gabrovo uh, when they read books, they turn the lights off. Why is that? Because the very short period of time, when you change the uh, the sheet of the book, you don't need to pay for the electricity that is lost while changing the, the sheet. <laughs> so that's why it's like a disco there, on and off. Oh, the, the lights go on and off? Yeah. Okay. That or was, another one. Yeah. Yes, you invite some guests. It is very rare, but okay, sometimes this happens. You invite guests. You have only 10 chairs, but you have 15 guests. You go to your neighbor and ask, sorry, do you have like five extra chairs? He says, yes, of course. Okay, I'm sending you five of my guests to be at your home. Perfect. That's a Gabrovo joke. Yes. Stefan Bozajev, thank you so much. And I'm going to come to Bulgaria. I'm going to go to Gabrovo and hear some more jokes. Yeah, more than welcome. Blagodario. More. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan Wolner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. 
This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.